was glad to, to sing Mighty Fortress, a song that Luther wrote and used to sing with his friend Melanchthon after a, a rough day when they were being persecuted or even when plague had come through the land and sickness. He would get his buddy and say, let's sing Psalm 46. And so he wrote that hymn, A Mighty Fortress, and God is our rock, God is our strength. And that indeed is the truth. It is um, what the reformer Luther said, but it's also in Scripture. And God is powerful. That's why He is somebody that we can depend upon. And that is the, the theme of the sermon today, is on God's power. God's power. And I want to show you the power of God displayed in Christ and the passage we're looking at today. Open to Ephesians 1. And we're going to look at the last section of chapter 1. I want to read the section in context starting in 15, but today we'll be looking at 20 through 23 as we continue our exposition of the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1 starting in verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, we ask this morning that we might see your power in this passage. We look to scriptures to see your power. We know that your power works in our hearts. It works in our lives as believers. But we want to learn more about you. We want to see what you've done through Christ. He is the perfect display of your power. Let us look to him. Let us consider what you've done for him, through him. And Lord, you are blessing us by teaching us more and more about you. So open our minds, enlighten our eyes even more, and let us see the truth of Christ Jesus. We pray, amen. What a great passage on knowing more about God. We've been looking at this paragraph for the last few weeks, and it's a prayer by Paul so that we might know more about God, how God works, who God is. Often we hear, give me more application. And we we want application in our sermons. We want application in our scriptures. And we often go too far with that, though. And we say, just tell me what to do. Just cut to the chase. Just tell me what to do, preacher. Tell me what to do, Bible. Let me just go to the Proverbs or a place that will give me all the commands I need to follow. Just tell me how to kill my sin, fix my problems, live a better life. Just tell me, God how to get rid of this mess that I'm in. But Paul doesn't start there. He'll get there. He'll get there in chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then he'll go all the way through chapter 6 
talking about how to live a godly life, how to defeat sin in your life, how to fight against the devil in spiritual warfare. But first, we have to have the right doctrine. We have to know something. Sometimes application is knowing what to do and doing it, but sometimes application, and, and usually it's at the root of what we know and believe, is changing our thinking. We have to have our minds more enlightened as to what Scripture teaches. We can't live out what we don't know. We can't do what we haven't been taught. And we certainly can't have a big idea, a big picture of God without studying the Scriptures, without seeing who God is. And so Paul starts there. He starts in the first long paragraph in in verse 3 of chapter 1, talking about election predestination. He doesn't wait till the end. He gets started right in the beginning with big doctrines. Because if we have our doctrine right, it's going to be that much easier to apply what we've learned. And like I said, maybe the application is changing our thinking. Often that's where it starts. Our thinking process is wrong. We don't think rightly about ourselves. We don't think rightly about God. And so Paul wants to set these things straight. Whether they're struggling with them or not, he wants them to know who God is, and what God has done. Chapter 2 will be more about who we are and how God has saved us from that. But chapter 1, who God is, and especially in this prayer. It's a long sentence from 15 all the way down to 23. It's the second longest sentence in the original Greek. In chapter 15, uh, verse 15, he's just giving thanks for their salvation. And then he begins to ask that God would enlighten them even more. They've already been enlightened. I think that's what verse 18 is saying. You heard me probably read it differently than the NASB. And we looked at that last week. They've already been enlightened when they were saved. But Lord, give them more of your spirit, more of your Holy Spirit, so they would have wisdom to apply what they've learned. And so they will not only have wisdom, but reveal more to them in Scripture. That's the Christian life. Applying what you've learned, learning, applying what you've learned, learning. And it all comes faster and faster as you grow in godliness. So by the time you get to 18 and 19, he's saying, here's the doctrinal truths you need to know about the Lord God himself. And he ends that little section in 19 with the surpassing greatness of his power. Now he doesn't stop there. Verse 20 picks up on Paul opening up a little theology on God's power. Four things he states there, and and I've grouped them into three for the sermon, but there's really... Four issues that God has shown his power. And he wants us to know who God is and what God has done to show his power. It's not out there. Don't go out there. Don't go looking for the, for the false healers. Don't go looking for the false prophets. Don't go looking for something miraculous to show up at your doorstep. Right there in Christ Jesus. That's where you see God's power. And so he wants to tell us about God's power. And he starts off in verse 20 saying, which he brought about in Christ. You see that? Where do we look for God's surpassing greatness, the power that God has? He brought about all of that power in Christ. God's power was put on display in Christ. It was worked out in Christ. That's what the word brought about in the original means. It's being worked out in Christ. It already has been worked out in Christ. We'll find that it continues to be worked out in Christ. Of course, we'll see it in the far future fully worked out in Christ. If you want to see God's power, you need only to look to the Messiah 
That's what Paul's saying. I pray that they would know your power through Christ Jesus. So in this passage, we're going to see the power of God shown in three major positions given to Christ. Three major positions given to Christ. Christ has been given three titles, three positions that he'll describe for us in verse, verses 20 through 23. How do we see God's power? In Christ. And then we need to ask, okay, now what does that mean for us if we're in Christ? Christ has the Father's power. What about us if we're in Christ? So the first position that we're going to see God's power is in the exaltation of Christ. He's in an exalted position after he was raised from the dead. After his death where he died on the cross and he paid for the price that sinners would be judged and would go forever to hell for, he paid that price for them, he ransomed them, he bought them back, he saved them, and he was in the tomb for three days. But then God's going to exalt him because to everyone else at that time, to, to be killed on the cross was awful was humbling it was it was not humbling in a good way it was in a bad way humbling this must be a criminal and then just to throw throw him into a tomb he can't be the son of god and yet god exalted him god showed everyone that he was the son of god that he was the messiah so in verse 20 god brought about something in christ god showed his power by bringing about something in christ first god raised him from the dead. The translation, the NASB says, when God raised him from the dead, maybe a little bit better would be by God raising him from the dead. God shows his power by raising him from the dead, not just when he did it, but by doing it. The fact that Christ was resurrected by the Father, it's a core doctrine of Christianity. It it shows us God's power, and it's a core belief that we must have. Without it, we have no faith at all. If we don't believe that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, well, we're not Christian. It is the gospel. It is the good news. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Paul also wrote 1 Corinthians, so go back in your Bibles just a bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter ends up being about the resurrection, but Paul starts off just explaining the gospel in a very short couple of sentences. And he says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So before he was raised, he died for our sins, and it was exactly according to the Old Testament Scriptures. Then he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So not only did he die for sinners, according to scriptures like Isaiah 53, but he was also raised again, according to scriptures like Psalm 110. He was raised again on the third day. So we must believe that that's true. That's, Paul says that's the gospel. The first things, the first importance. I told these things to you, the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And of course, if you're presenting that to somebody, you go on and talk to them about the forgiveness of their sins, if they trust in Christ. That they can be saved by, by trusting in this Messiah who died on the cross and was raised again. That if they return from their sins and, and put their faith in that Jesus, not the Jesus of the world, not the Jesus of our own mind, but the Jesus that the Scripture teaches us about. If we, if we put our faith in that Jesus, we can be saved. 
That's the gospel, Paul says. This raising of Christ is a supernatural, miraculous event. And it's essential to the Christian faith. In that event, in the resurrection, we see God's power. We see how powerful he is that he can bring somebody back from the dead, overcome the obstacles of death. Something that all men have to go through, except for Christ. He was perfect in every way. He never sinned. He didn't even have a sinful nature to him, like all the rest of us. And yet they killed him anyway. But he only gave up his life for God the Father's purpose. God sent him to save a people, and God sent him, this passage says, to show us his power. Back to 1 Corinthians verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Worthless. And you're still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's how essential the resurrection is. And Paul in Ephesians, he wants his readers to know that God's powerful enough to raise the dead. And that should give us hope for the rest of our lives. Can I lose my salvation? Is somehow going to be snatched away from me? Maybe on my deathbed, I'll say some things and do some things and, and say some sinful things that would put my salvation in jeopardy. Maybe I'll lose my mind in old age. And he says, no, God is powerful enough to raise his son from the dead. He's powerful enough to keep you from falling away. He's powerful enough to secure your salvation. He's powerful enough to raise you from the dead when Christ returns. When you'll be perfect. You'll be holy if you're in Christ, if you trusted in him. He's that powerful. That's the kind of power we're talking about here in this passage. And it's shown in the resurrection. God will keep his promises. He's powerful enough to do that. One church historian said, if Christ Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. He did rise from the dead. Nothing else matters but Christ. Then when we have him, we can godly, uh, live a godly life and, and show others about Christ. The resurrection is God's undeniable proof undeniable proof to the world that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. How powerful is God? He's powerful enough to send His Son to die on the cross for an innumerable amount of sinners that are going to be saved. One death. We don't know how many eventually will be in heaven, but it's a large number. That's how powerful God is. That's how powerful God is. And He could raise Him from the dead and make Him alive again. That should help us. It should establish an unshakable foundation for hope in God. He will fulfill his promises. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there's not a next life, what's the point, Paul says? But now something has actually happened. Christ has been raised from the dead. If it wasn't true, we're hopeless. These people who believe in a Jesus that wasn't raised from the dead, there's no hope in that. It's called progressive liberal Christianity. There's, there's no hope in that because they don't think he was raised from the dead. They don't think he ever died either. He's just a man, they say. And Paul says, look, if that's the case, we're most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. It has happened. And he's the first fruits of those who are asleep. Our salvation is bound up in all that Christ has done. 
the cross and the resurrection and even his ascension and his continued reigning upon the throne. Just like Jesus will get a new body in the resurrection, it'll be a glorious body, an immortal body, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, a powerful body, a spiritual body. Those are the things we should look forward to when we read that God's power raised Christ from the dead. He raised him from the dead. That, that, that's how he showed his power. But he also, verse 20, Ephesians 1, verse 20, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, we're still looking at how he was exalted. Being raised from the dead is an exaltation. Who else has been raised from the dead with a perfect body that will never die? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he went on to die again. Other people came to life, it says in Matthew, when Jesus was on the cross and he was dying in that last few moments. People came out of the tombs and walked around. They got a little more life. They were really alive, but they went on to die a normal death. Jesus is the only one who has a fully perfect resurrected body. But that's not enough. He's exalted even more. He seated him, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is talking about where Christ is right now. This is an honor, an honorable position, a position of authority. Christ is put in a place right next to God the Father on his throne. The idea here is, is Christ is reigning over the universe. Now he always was because he's divine. He is God. But he came to the earth. He became the God-man. He's the God-man. Then God raised him from the dead and took him up to heaven to rule and to reign from heaven. This is pointing back to, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 where, where King David predicts the future Messiah's kingship. And Jesus uses this verse to trip up the Pharisees. But it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord. So the, the Lord God, Yahweh, says to David's Lord. So somebody under the Lord, God, the Son, sit at my right hand. So the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. So this messianic figure, we know him as the son of God Jesus, will sit at the Father's right hand. Who else could he be but God's son? Who sits on God's throne but God? So he has to be the son of God, but he's also the, the Messiah who will rule. But first the enemies are going to be under his feet. Then the Lord will stretch forth the Messiah's strong scepter, the ruling rod from Zion. And he will say, rule in the midst of your enemies. So that's Psalm 110. And that's what Paul is saying here, that Jesus wasn't only raised, but he was exalted by raising all the way up. He was raised all the way up to heaven and his ascension. Forty days after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven to rule over the universe at God's right hand. That's highly exalted. We will be raised from the dead someday with perfect bodies. We'll never be sitting at the right hand of God's throne. How powerful is God that he can raise the dead and that he can put Christ Jesus right next to him on his throne. And Paul goes on in verse 21 to describe what this looks like. What does this mean that he's on God's throne? 
He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These are not human rulers. Sometimes authorities are mentioned in Scripture. Sometimes powers. Those are, those are human, rules, uh, human rulers. But, but here's talking about angelic authorities. And we see, we're going to see this all the way through Ephesians. We're going to get to chapter 6, and it's going to talk about putting on the armor of God so we can resist the devil. And he's going to say we, we need that to resist the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions that are of the devil. This is the demonic realm. The demonic realm has different orders, a different hierarchical structure of demons. We don't know exactly how they line up. We can't draw a chart for you. But there are different levels under Satan, really. And of course, all of these being under God and his sovereignty. But there's rulers. Those would be like an arch demon. And there's authorities and powers, dominions, different groups of angels, demonic angels, evil spirits. And, and to the Ephesians, they would have loved hearing this right here. That their Lord is above all rule and authority and dominion. Why? Because they'd spent their whole life till they got converted worshiping these demons. The Bible says that false gods, pagan gods, are really demons in disguise. They disguise themselves and then people worship them. It's Satan's long uh, historical trick that he's done since the beginning. He, he, since Adam and Eve fell, people have worshipped statues. They've worshipped paintings. They've worshipped something other than God. And what they're really doing is worshipping demons. And the Ephesians knew this after they were converted. Paul had taught them that. And he's reminding them here, our Lord, our King, our Messiah is above all of those groups. No matter how high up and how powerful these demons are, Jesus is more powerful because he is above all of them. And they would have loved hearing that truth because around them in their society are still sorcerers, magicians, false pagan priests, people worshiping these demons. And they're seeing it everywhere. They probably had family members still in this idolatry. But their God is above all of those things. Jesus is far above those. And he's above every name that is named. His authority is expanded beyond just the angels to just everything. It's enough to be above all the angels, but just everything. Anything you could imagine, Paul says, Christ is above. Everything that's been named, because God's named everything that exists. It says a few times in the Bible that, that God has named everything, even the stars. And now, Christ is above those. God has, has, has given them all under Christ now. Everything you can possibly imagine, Christ has authority over it. Is there something that can affect me? Is there something more powerful than God? He's saying no. There's nothing more powerful than God and God working through Christ. Nothing. Which makes us wonder why we worry. Why do we worry so much about the things going on sometimes? Jesus says not to worry. He is above all of those things, far above, seated at the right hand of God. And not only in this age, because they probably would have thought, you know, that's great in this age, but what about the next age to come that they had heard about? Not just in this age, he says, here in verse 21, but also in the one to come. 
He's not just above all spiritual demonic rulers, but he's above earthly rulers now and in the age to come. How do we know what's going to happen next? Will will Christ somehow change in the age to come? Paul says no, not just now, but, but also in the next age. This age right now, this age is the present age. The gospel is going out. The church is being built. Citizens of the kingdom are coming into the church. God has, is saving people. That's this age. When Christ returns, that starts the next age. The next age. His, his, the messianic age. His age of ruling upon the earth. Right now, he's seated at the right hand of God. Right now, he is overseeing all things in the universe. But he's coming back to rule on David's throne upon the earth. That's the next age to come. Paul ties it up nicely in Philippians 2. He says, Philippians 2, 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him. The reason there being that that Christ was humble. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. When Jesus comes back and they hear his name, they will bow. All of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's seated at God's right hand. And when he comes back, every knee will bow. And he's above every name. All demonic powers, even now he's above them. The Ephesian citizens, as I said, were, were very fearful. Even the believers, I can imagine, were fearful. They have the largest pagan temple in the Greek world at that time, right there in the middle of the city. You walk out your house, you see the temple of Artemis. There it is. The beautiful, one of the seven wonders of the world. Everyone's flocking to town. Everyone's buying their little idols to take home. There's magical scratches on the statues. You go home and you're supposed to read these incantations and they help you. They would have been fearful. And Paul says, our Lord has been exalted above all of that. All of that. It doesn't matter because Christ is above it all. You know, we live in a civilization that's more like Ephesus than ever before. We're going more pagan in our world. It's growing darker, especially in Western civilization. Pagan areas are growing with more light. Gospels going out, places like Africa and such. But here in America and in Europe, it's growing dark. It's growing dark, and we're looking more like Ephesus of old. Even this Friday, I read that thousands of witches will gather together in the U.S. to put a binding spell on the president. And we laugh at that because it's kind of silly. You know, as Christians, that's silly, but they think it's real. They're worshiping and getting power from somewhere. I mean, I don't think they're going to be able to do it, of course, but, you know, they're, they're, they're praying and they're asking to something to give them this power. There's a spiritual battle going on in our families, in our hearts, in our homes, in our cities, in our nation, in our world. And it's real. It's real. But we have a Savior that's above all of that, far above that. And he's given us the power through him to fight against these things, especially in our own lives. Sometimes we're limited what we can do in the world, but we can do something about us. We can do something about our families. We can try to do something about our communities. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, said it like this, God does not save us and forgive our sins and then leave us to ourselves to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. He has given us the gift of the Spirit. By the Spirit, Christ dwells in us. 
And he's able to do for us exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. When you tend to feel oppressed, he says, by the devil and the world and the flesh, remember the power that brought Christ up again from the dead and which is working in you now according to the riches of his grace. You've got Christ's power working in you now. You're not going to go out today and raise the dead and, and, and walk across the water. No, you're going to go out and live a godly life and you have the ability to do it because of Christ's power, the kind of power that raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. So we see God's power displayed in the exaltation of Christ, but also in the lordship of Christ. Also in the lordship. Not only, not only has Christ been raised up to sit beside the Father on his throne, but he's also had all things subjected to him. We tie these together often in our minds. Of course, if he's above all things, then all things are under him. But are all things actually subjected to him just because he's higher? Paul separates these two out. Christ has been exalted higher than he was when he was upon the earth. And everything down here has actually been put in order under him, subjected to him, submitted to him. You might not think that's the case, but he says it has happened here. Verse 22. And he, this is God, the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet. Christ's feet. God the Father put all things, everything, in subjection to the Son. Pointing back to Psalm 8, 6. Paul's just, he knows his Bible, he knows his Old Testament. And as he writes, he's, he's alluding to these passages in the Psalms. Psalm 8, 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. He's just talking about mankind here, David is, in Psalm 8. And he said, man is so blessed. God, you have created all this wonderful world and you put man to rule over it. You have put all things under his feet. So that was the creation mandate. Adam was supposed to go out and rule over the earth. He was supposed to cultivate it, take care of it, and rule over it as God's vice regent of course he failed at that didn't he he failed because of sin because of satan because of his wife and because of his own heart desires his wife fell into that sin as well eve but we have a perfect adam a second adam that will rule over the earth perfectly go to hebrews chapter 2 hebrews ties both of these ideas together nicely hebrews 2 6 and Hebrews 2, 6 begins to quote from Psalm 8. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, that's verse 5, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, that's Psalm 8, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So this is just talking about mankind, quoting from Psalm 8. Of course, we fell at that. It's not actually possible for us to rule over creation rightly. For in subjecting all things to him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So God put mankind over the earth, over creation. And we were supposed to rule over it, but we fail and we fail and we fail. 
And even now, the writer says, you don't see that actually happening. But, verse 9, Hebrews 2, 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Then he goes on to talk about Jesus. We can't do it. We can't perfectly rule over God's glorious creation. But there is a man. There is a God-man, Jesus, who can do it. And he will bring about all the things that God has promised. And we will see all things in subjection to him. It's already happened. Ephesians 1.22, it's already happened. He put all things in subjection. That's already happened in the past. But we don't see it yet. Where is it? Where are all the things in subjection to Christ? How, how, how does that work? Well, we will see it though. We will see it. Everything, Paul says, is put in subjection now to Christ. Everything, living things, dead things, human powers, angelic powers, all of creation is under him and submitting to him. Who, who can do anything outside of God's sovereign will? We think we have a, a type of free will that we can just do whatever we want, but we actually can't. We have a freedom to choose in many cases, but even that choice is preordained by God. How does that work? We can't figure it out. The Bible just says that's the way it is. God has foreordained all things. And Christ is over all things right now. We just can't see it. We can't make sense of all of it right now. But we have to trust that it's true. And we will see it. We will see it when he returns. You see, the Ephesians, they thought that the demons had some power. You know, they had been saved out of it and they were concerned about that. But also the Romans, the government. The government had subjected the whole world at that time, the known world, to themselves. One Roman historian said the Romans have brought the whole world into subjection to themselves. But it's really not true. It's not true. They, they thought they had subjected the world to themselves, but really it was Christ who had all things subjected to him. Ultimately, he's over the Roman Empire. He's over the emperor. He's over all countries today. He's over the president. Well, I don't see it. Why is there so much evil in our nation, in our world? He's over all things. That's what the Bible says. He's patient. God is patient. He's given people time to repent. He he will bring about his judgment. He's already doing it in a smaller way in many cases. But he will bring about the great judgment someday. He owns all of it. The problem is we just can't see it. And sometimes we, we lose faith. We doubt. That's our problem though. That's not God's problem. He has put Christ over all things. One Dutch theologian, this is a famous quote, you may have heard it. Abraham Kuyper famously said, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Everything. Every molecule in your body, everything you do today, everything that's ever been done, everything that ever will be done, that's Christ. Now, it's not all holy. There's a lot of sin. But he is sovereign over all of it. He is supreme over all of it. How can these things happen? How, how can China bulldoze churches and arrest pastors right now this month? How can Muslim countries execute Christians? How can these evil things happen in the world like a seven-year-old boy almost be castrated chemically by his mother in Texas? How can courts be used to do such sinful things? How can legislatures pass such sinful laws and allow abortion and thousands every day to be killed? But Jesus is still supreme. He's still sovereign, isn't he? We don't know his, 
his plans. We don't know his, his designs. We don't know the mind of God. But he will show us one day. If you're his, you'll see Christ's return and you'll see all things in view subjected to him. They actually are now. We just can't see it because it's in the spiritual realm. It's in the heavenlies. But one day we will see it all. He's still supreme, even though these things are happening. He's still showing his power through his reigning and ruling. All things are in subjection to him. But the full exercise will not be fully seen until his return. Then we'll see it. Paul says, then we'll see clearly. We'll see him face to face. And we'll see all things clearly. But now we need to realize that Christ is in control. Even though we don't see it, he's in control. It's God's power working through him. Thirdly, we not only have the exalted Christ, we not only have the Lord Christ, the Lordship, but also God's powers displayed in the headship of Christ. That's these last two verses in Ephesians 1. God's power is displayed in the headship of Christ over his church. Yeah, he's the Lord of all creation, but what about the church? Well, this verse will say he's head over his church. The one who rules all things is also head of the church? Yes. That's what Paul's saying. He might be Lord of all things, but it's not as if he's so busy he can't also be head of the church. We take that for granted, of course. Christ is head of the church, but early Christians would have wondered, how does that work? Who, who's actually ruling the church? Sometimes people get it wrong today. Who, who's actually head of the church? Verse 22, and he gave him his head over all things to the church. So God's power is displayed in giving Christ as the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Church is the body. Christ is the head. He's intimately connected. The head is intimately connected with the body. It's not the same as the body in, in the biblical metaphor here, but it's intimately connected. Christ is the head. We are his body, his, his soma. There's some churches that have the, the name soma in their name for the church. Soma is the Greek word for body here. And, and it's a metaphor throughout the New Testament. We are the body of Christ. All genuine believers. We're not talking about a building. This building's not the body of Christ. We're not talking even about a denomination. We're talking about the true church. All true churches make up the one true church. And we are his body. It's a great metaphor here. Uh, they, not everybody in the ancient world knew this, but we know today that the head houses the control center for the body, the brain and the nervous system. I think Paul knew it. I think God uh, inspired him, of course, to write this, and he must have known, and many knew that the head controlled the whole body. And the head controls the movement of the body. So Christ controls the exercising of his power in the church. He is the head. He, he is giving us all the things we need to believe and giving us all the things we need to do. We see a good illustration of this later in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 5. And he's going to compare this to marriage. So what are the two things most challenged in our society today? The true Christian church and what we believe and marriage. And these are the two things that actually picture one another. Ephesians 5 Starting in verse 28, 
He's already talked to the wives here. He's talking to the husbands about loving their wives. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So if you love your wife, you love yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, another word for body there, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. So marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. He goes on in verse 30. Because we are members of his body. So there's this body language here. The husband is his head over the wife, it says in 1 Corinthians. And head in a sense that she is to submit to him. Bible teaches that. I know that's rejected by the world today, but the scriptures say that. And in the church, you have men are to be the elders. Men are to preach. 1 Timothy chapter 2, another verse that will really make people irritated and angered today. But that's the design that God has set up. God has set it up that way in the marriage. And Paul's saying in Ephesians 1, God has set it up that way with Christ and the church. So if you're reading through Ephesians, there's no use getting upset at the way marriage is talked about here because we've already seen back in chapter 1 that headship is a good thing. Do we want Christ as head of our church or we just want to do our own thing? So by the time you get to chapter 5, this, this beautiful picture here with marriage, picturing Christ and the church, it's an analogy that should help us understand both marriage and the church. We're in an intimate relationship, just like a man is with his wife. We are in an intimate relationship with Christ. So what does that mean for us that he's our head? What does that mean? How can we apply this? Well, he's there for our every need. He's our head. He's there for our every need. If we need something, we can go to him. We've already been told he's at the right hand of God, the Father. We've already been told that everything's been subjected to him. Is, Is anything outside of his ability? Is anything outside of his power? Can he change things in our life? Yeah, he's our head and he's also Lord of all creation. And he's also sitting on the right hand of the Father on the throne. So why not go to him? Of course we should go to him. He is sufficient for everything. He's sufficient for everything. We, we so often as Christians want to look somewhere else. Somewhere else. Instead of just praying first to God through Christ. He's our head. We have access to God through him. Why wouldn't we pray through Christ? He's sufficient. Whatever we need, take it to him. Now you might get other means by which God has put in place to accomplish certain things in your life, but Christ is sufficient to change things for you for good. And he will do it. But we're supposed to pray to him. Why should we pray to him if he's already sovereign over it? Because he tells us to? Because he uses our prayers to accomplish the things that he wants? Because we should want to talk to our Lord, we can pray directly to Christ or we can pray directly to the Father. But also, Christ is head of the church means it's his church. I know it sounds like I'm saying the same thing, but listen, it's his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. It's his church. He gets to tell us what the church believes. He gets to tell us what the church is. He gets to tell us what the church should do. You know, I think this new ministry would be really great. Christ is the head of the church. If it fits into the Bible, if it connects with our mission as a church to what Christ said, that's a great idea. 
Well, you know, I, I think we should just change up everything in worship. And we should get a, a new kind of music in here. And we should get a men in tights dancing on the stage. And maybe a rodeo arena here. And some wrestling stuff going on. You laugh, but that's actually happened in the last few years in many churches. I could go on with that list. Giraffes on stage. Lions on stage. Mercedes. Tanks. It's Christ's church. It's his church. We're not here to attract the world. He never said, do all these crazy things to attract people. He said, preach the word. Preach the word. It does not always attract people, but people will come in and hear it and go out and tell people about the gospel. Nothing in there about do whatever you want and it'll be fine. It's his church. I love what John MacArthur says on this. He's really the one that's emphasized this for me in the past. People would always ask him, why can't we do this? You need to do this. You need to preach on that. You need to change your theology on this. You need to stop this. You need to start this. And he would just sit down with them and they would get really upset. You know, they're being legalistic. They're trying to split the church. And he would say, whose church is it? Who's the head of the church? It's not me. It's not the elders. Yeah, they're the under shepherds, but Christ is the head of the church. It's his church. And even the under shepherds, the elders, are supposed to submit to what's in Scripture. And follow Christ as the head. It's his church. And we even see in the last phrase here how Paul flushes that fully out. Verse 23. The body, the church here, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. A verse like that has a lot of interesting interpretations to it. But I do think the best one in context here is that the church is filled by Christ. So the church is the fullness of him because he's filled it. He's filled the church with his fullness. We, we are the fullness of him, which is a reason we need to live holy, which is a reason we need to point to Christ with our life and our words. He is filling the church with his fullness. We are the fullness of him. He's perfect. We are not completing anything in him. He's completing everything in us. He is the fullness filling the church. And he is in each one of us through our union with him. So he fills the church. It's his, he's the head. He fills the body. He, he makes it move. He makes it active and living. Christ does that. And we're united with him. And now he says he fills all in all. What does that mean? Well, he fills the church and then works through the church. His power and grace come through the church out to the world. Through his body, he fills all in all. As head of the church, he's exercising his power in a ministry and an action that, that fills all things on earth and things in heaven. And eventually, we'll see that finally happen when he returns. But even now, He's filling all in all. And the main way he does that is through his church. There's a lot of talk out there about people getting saved, not hearing the gospel and having dreams and having visions and people coming to Christ some other way. But the scripture talks about preachers going out. And the scripture talks about the church taking the gospel to other nations, to other people. That's the way Christ is working in this age. To take the gospel to other people. And he's filling other people as he unites himself to them. And he's building more individual churches, which grows his church. And more believers are coming to Christ 
and going to die and wait for him in heaven when he returns, to wait for him to return. So he is the one. He's the fullness. He fills the church, and the church does the mission that he's given us. Look at how great God's power is here in this passage. Look at how supreme God's power is. He's that powerful. Is that not enough power to protect us fully from all things that come against us? Is that not enough power that when you evangelize, that God can save a person? It's not up to you to save them. It's up to you to proclaim the message. But is God not powerful enough to save them? Is God not powerful enough to improve your marriage? Is God not powerful enough in Christ to improve your love for your wife and your love and submission to your husband wife? Is God not powerful enough that we should pray and ask him to help us? Is God not powerful enough that we should worship him in the church? Yes, the answer is yes to all. God is infinitely powerful and he's shown us through Christ. He's powerful enough to help us fight in a spiritual battle, to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, and everything that we need. His power is sufficient. We don't need to look anywhere else for supernatural, spiritual power. God's given us all things. That's the message here. We see it in Christ, and now we ought to live according to that. We ought to pray and ask God to work through us with his power so that we might live more godly lives and be a holy church. Let's go to him now and ask those things. Lord Jesus, we pray to you as our head. You're the one who's over all things. You control all things. Every atom in this universe is held together by your power. And so we know when we come to you, when we pray to you, that you will accomplish your will. As long as our prayer is lined up with your will, you will answer it in your timing. So I pray today, Lord, that you would help us to live for you, that we would acknowledge, each one of us, that you are head individually and you're our head in the corporate gathering of the church. We acknowledge you are Lord over all creation, that you are sitting next to God the Father on the throne. Change us. Make us live for you. Help us to live a life that shows your power even in us. We pray that you would give us a love for knowing doctrine and a love for living it out. Bless our church, Lord. Amen.